Welcome to This Podcast is Not for Profit. Our sector is full of big hearts, tiny budgets, and audacious goals. Join us as we explore the forces shaping the nonprofit sector, speak to experts and innovators, and share stories from the front lines of the fight to end hunger, poverty, and create more inclusive communities. Welcome, listeners. Today is an exciting episode because we are going to talk to someone a little bit different. Normally, we speak to nonprofit leaders, individuals with lived experience, or people involved in the social services. But today, we are speaking with the executive director of Haltech. Although her organization is technically a nonprofit, their focus is really on business and helping bring good ideas to life. Haltech enables startup and scale up technology innovators and entrepreneurs to accelerate their growth and navigate the path to profit. From startups to large global corporations, Haltech helps advance technology based innovations to market or to scale up a business. With their staff and team of experienced advisors, they offer workshops, advisory services, and strategic connections to develop and grow innovation oriented businesses to the next stage. So, why are we speaking to Shan today, you might be thinking? Well, it's because innovation is a bit of a minefield when it comes to nonprofits. On the one hand, nonprofits are some of the most innovative organizations in the world, tasked with solving some of the most pressing issues in our community, faced with tiny budgets, passion, and a collaborative spirit that is the envy of many other sectors. Last year, United Way Worldwide was named to Fast Company's Most Innovative Companies list for the first time. Not bad for a 130-year-old organization. And as we know, many in the nonprofit sphere are de facto innovators, having to make do with limited resources. Navi Raju calls this frugal innovation, an idea that echoes the old adage that necessity is the mother of invention. With an emphasis on stripping away unnecessary complexity and features, frugal innovation focuses on users' needs and on achieving more with less resources. But this approach can only get you so far. For decades, nonprofits have been held to an incredibly rigorous and short-sighted standard when it comes to spending on research, evaluation, staff salaries, and program development. Could you imagine if you asked Apple to create the next iPhone, but only allowed them to pay below market rate for their employees, rely on volunteers or students to conduct research, and conduct no evaluation or customer surveys? What would result? We've essentially asked nonprofits to do this for hunger, mental health, social isolation, and climate change. Even worse, we often do this through the mechanism of annual grants and expect virtually no overhead on unnecessary things such as rent and equipment. That is why I'm excited to bring you the first of a series of podcasts that will focus on social innovation and how we can encourage and enable the nonprofit sector to innovate, take smart risks, and be bold in how they approach these problems. One of the most consistent messages that we hear from many of our partners is the importance of capacity building. Most of our funded agencies cannot invest in researching the newest evaluation frameworks, interventions, or service delivery models, and United Way brings a unique perspective that bridges the gap between those client-facing and systems planning and policy work. As such, we are launching a social R&D strategy within our investments, capacity building, and fundraising efforts. 
Starting in March 2020, we are launching a social innovation lab and will bring five non-for-profit partners through a six-month design thinking curriculum focused on social enterprise. Participants will engage clients in co-designing, prototyping, and testing services that meet their needs. From creating barrier-free employment opportunities, recycling mattresses, and building a healthy lunch program at schools, our teams are going to challenge each other to think differently and hopefully become more resilient because they are generating revenues through those social enterprises. Haltech is one of the partners helping take the tools developed for business and translating them into the context of social services. So this discussion today, while not about the social innovation labs, helps set the stage for why thinking like an entrepreneur is good for nonprofits, and conversely, why thinking like a nonprofit may be good for entrepreneurs. Shan McGrail, um, the C- CEO or the CEO, executive director, you know. CEO, I'll, executive, I'll take whatever title you excellent give CEO, executive director of Haltech. And we're here to talk a little bit about what Haltech does and a little bit about innovation. Uh, so first, can you start off by telling me a little bit about Haltech? What is your mandate? What do you do? Um, who are your clients? You know, that kind of thing. Sure. Well, let me start with the who we are. So Haltech is one of the 18 regional innovation centers across mm-hmm. Ontario, and we're funded in a large part by the Ontario provincial government and uh, the Ministry of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade. And um, in addition, obviously, with some you know, generous corporate sponsors and other communities. So that's how we're funded. We're not for profit. And uh, our job is really to service innovation companies in the Halton region. So Burlington, Oakville, uh, Milton, and Halton Hills. So that's who we're centered and who we serve. And I'll talk a little bit more about clients, in fact, don't all come from here. They actually come from other areas in addition to to the clients based right here. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'll talk about that in a second. But our, our job really is to help innovation companies, whether they be startup, right through to scale up, Mm. navigate the path to profitability. So it's, you know, helping them take those ideas, turn them into products, offering services, help them get into market, sell those, and then continue to expand, whether that's within Canada or hopefully globally Mm. and really get their exports out there as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we really try to do throughout that process is take clients on a journey. Mm. So whatever stage they're in when they come to us, We have a set of different types of services. Those services might be education. So it could be seminars, workshops, lunch and learns. Uh, We also then will look at, is the client now ready for some one-to-one mentorship and advisory services? So perhaps they want to work with an expert who might be an industry expert. They might be an expert in a particular function, HR, finance, Mm -hmm. marketing. Uh, So we kind of match where the client is, what do they need next to move to that step on their journey, and then we make that happen. And then the third real big bucket of what we do is part of what I call strategic connections. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of our clients come in here, and at some stage, they're looking for funding and finance, or they're looking for clients, Mm -hmm. right? They've got a product, or they want to talk to somebody who can validate their Mm -hmm. idea. So we will, you know use our network and our connections and make that work for our clients and find them the best people to talk to, whether it's, you know, validating those ideas Mm -hmm. or it's, you know, they need somebody to help them with their, you know, some aspect of professional services. 
So we kind of use that network. And, and I think that's, you know, the three, um, that strategic connection one is really the, the most impactful to our clients. I, they all are, but I think that one is really kind of the, the, the cherry on the Sunday, if you will. Yeah, it certainly sounds like that's something that, um, is very difficult um, to do in this space. Um, so could you actually describe a sort of a typical client journey or is that not even really possible in this context? It sounds like you service really people across the spectrum from like paper napkin to ready to implement. We, and we do, and we, we actually do call that the client journey. So they may come to us, if I take you through it, it's uh, four steps, or sorry, I should say five steps. So the first thing is you have an idea, mm-hmm. right? So I have this idea, maybe it's not even on paper yet. Um, but I know that I have an idea because of some experience or something I've seen causes this idea. So clients can show up at our door and, and they can be as early as that. And our services may include having them go to a series of clinics that we run called Start Me Up. And through that Start Me Up process, they'll get clearer on how to move that idea to the next step. What are the processes? What are the tools you can use to really crystallize that idea and figure out what you're going to do with it next. The next step then is discovery. And in the discovery stage, you know, that's where you start to flesh out the business plan. What is this really going to look like? And you start to go through the process of peeling the onion, if you will, of that idea. What do you need to know? How are you going to think about the customer? Who are you going to target in those customers? So you go through that step in discovery. And then you would move on to the validation stage. And that's where you're starting to, you know, kind of take that proof of concept you might have come up with in discovery and go and see if somebody's interested in it. Go talk to some customers, get their input, see if they would pay you for that. What does the business model look like? What's the right pricing? All of those types of things are going to happen in that validation stage because you're starting to build your market, figure out who it is and what they're willing to pay for. And then once you start to drive a little bit of revenue and your idea is validated, you've got people interested, um, then you're going to start into efficiency. And efficiency is, you know, now you know you've got something saleable and it's how do I really get that out there in larger quantities and really expand. So you might be bringing on your sales teams, expanding your marketing, figuring out your operations. And then once you get to scale, you know, you've got something that's really working and it's a matter of expanding your markets and expanding your opportunity. And so do you deal with like different, because it sounds like you can really sort of service someone, right? Like an individual founder who has an idea, who wants to sort of scale their idea all the way to at the, at the at sort of at the other end, it sounds like you could, you could, you could almost be dealing with like large companies that mm-hmm. are really looking at that efficiency piece and they, maybe they have that idea. Are, do people typically come in sort of, is it a linear process where they come in with that idea and then you work with them the whole way through? Or do they, can you just like slot in and come in later on in the process? Absolutely. So the way we work is wherever the client is when they come to us, we have an intake process and we assess where they Mm -hmm. are and work with them to help them understand Mm -hmm. what the next milestone is. And then we look at all of the different types of resources Mm -hmm. and tools and things that we can help them get there. Um, so that's, you know, whatever stage the client is in, we'll figure it out with them, help them understand the next step, and then plot all of our services, resources, expertise to help them get there. Interesting. And so you mentioned that Haltech is part of a sort of a network of yes. regional innovation centers. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about how that kind of ecosystem works? Like, how do you collaborate with each other? How do you, how are you connected? And you mentioned also that some people are coming in from different areas. They might mm-hmm. not be coming in from 
Halton region in particular. Sure. So how does that whole ecosystem work? And, and why is it important to have those kinds of connections? Sure. The, so the, the system is called the Ontario Network of Entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And it's all of the innovation centers, mm-hmm. along with other types of um, organizations that also focus on business. So the small business mm-hmm. centers that, you know, there's one in Halton region. So it's all of those different types of organizations working together. And some great examples would be, we've got clients here who have come to us and let's say that they're in the advanced manufacturing space. But let's say they also have something that is part of um, autonomous vehicles or transportation. Well, my neighbor's down the road at Innovation Factory. They're another regional innovation center. So we can refer them there so that they get the support from that program, mm. as well as working with the advisory team here to help them advance their business. So that would be one example. Um, Innovation Factory also has the Synapse Network for organizations in the life sciences space. So it's an example of how we collaborate. My um, neighbors on the other side going farther east in Mississauga, same types of things. So we'll collaborate mm. on um, a recent example being Angel One First Look, where we had companies from Mississauga, from Haltech, from Innovation Factory, and they had a chance to showcase what they do, pitch competition, a chance to show what they're all about in front of a community of investors and interested, those interested in innovation. So those are just some real quick examples, but it certainly goes farther afield, and um, every one of the centers has the same mandate, however, different expertise and different advisors. So we work together to really tap into that to get the best result mm. for clients. Interesting. And and to kind of um, build on that, I know that, you know, you guys have kind of made a little bit of a name for yourself around social innovation. Um, you have probably more kind of social entrepreneurs in, um, in your regional innovation center than some others. So I'm thinking of like Innovation Factory, um, for example. How come you have, how, how, what, what's contributed to that success in sort of focusing in on social innovation or even attracting, say, female founders? Because I know you, your percentage of female founders is quite a bit um, higher. Was this an active strategy? Was this a happenstance of geography and of the region? You know, and, and, and what are some sort of, you know, what are some suggestions that you might have for people who are trying to encourage social entre- uh, innovation, which is, I would say, maybe a little bit harder uh, in some ways? It's a great question, and I was thinking about that before we sat down today. So I think if I look at, um, maybe I'll start with female entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. So that, um, for us, we've got better than 30% of our clients are female founders, which is That's great huge. when, yeah, when we look at the tech industry, yeah. it's about 13%. So wow. I think I think that's amazing. And I, to be honest with you, I don't have any hard data that tells me why that is. So anything I say now is going to be my personal opinion. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's a combination of factors. So one factor is um, demographics, and I think this applies both to the number of female founders as well as our social innovation mm. percentage, which is above 40%, yeah. in fact. Um, so part of it is the demographics of the region. Mm. And when I think about that, it goes a little bit deeper. So if you walk around our office here in Burlington or you go up to Milton and walk around that office, You'll notice that the clients are not, you know, the typical 20-somethings that we sometimes have been led to believe are all the entrepreneurs wearing hoodies. That's not really our our group here. What you'll see are people who've got some career experience. They've done other things. So they're coming at us to a stage where 
maybe they worked for a corporation. Now they've decided to go and apply their skills and talents in the entrepreneurship and innovation space. Hmm. Sometimes they've done this second or third time, and now they're coming, you know, at the stage where this is their, their next venture. Hmm. So I think there's a little bit of that um, on the female founder side. You know, we see that happen. I think that's part of the region is that, you know, they know that this is a place that they can come yeah. and, you know, feel so you very get a reputation for it at that point. Yeah, I think yeah. it's a little bit of that. And um, I've also worked in the, the, you know, women in technology space for a long time. So I think there's, you know, sometimes your own network yeah. shows up to where you yeah. are. So I think there's a little bit of that opportunity. Um, so I think that the demographics come to us. They're at a little bit different stage in their career. And I think that also lends itself to why we see a lot of social innovation, mm. right? We all get to a certain stage, maybe at the beginning of your career, you're driven by, you know, climbing the ladder or making some money or whatever that might be. But then you do get to a stage where you realize, you know, the world's a big place and there are lots of problems to be solved. And I see people bringing so much creativity to how to solve those problems. And and I, I know you talk about this a lot, but Social innovation doesn't mean not-for-profit. Yeah. And what I see are creative business models that these companies are coming up with to make money while they are doing good, right? And I think that's really what um, is interesting to me around the high number of social innovators that we have. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting because if you think, it, like, there's definitely something that, you know, that uh, United Way Halton Hamilton is interested in, and and it's 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 one of those things where I think, especially in the non for profit sector, you know, it is an innovative sector, but bringing in that kind of business angle and and thinking about okay, how do we then build out some of these social innovations so that 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 as a sector we're more resilient and less reliant on those kind of annual funding cycles um, is really challenging. And I think what, what's really interesting about, you know, even thinking about your own network and bringing in females and attracting some of those people that you might not associate, right? The, 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 the hoodied bros, right? Like it, that's interesting because it speaks to the importance of diversity, right? And that kind of people at those different stages in their careers, making those kinds of decisions, you know, with bringing their own experience is so foundational to really shifting that culture and shifting that approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really, uh, that's really, that's really great. Well, and I think it's one of, you know, to go back to the fact that I see a lot of people who have that corporate experience. Yeah. Um, and I think they really understand that, um, you know, the annual funding thing for doing good is really tough. Yeah. So I think that that understanding of you have to build something that's financially yeah. sustainable. Yeah. And if it's financially sustainable, that means people are supporting it and you can plan for the longer term. That's right. That's right. Right. And you can think beyond, you know, this is what I have to deliver this yeah. year to, you know, strategically, what can we do because this is widely supported and we have money to reinvest yeah. in new activities, new opportunities, new service delivery capabilities. Yeah. And that gives you that mental space to think about what it is that you're doing and to make those kinds of plans because those innovations can take a while, right? For them to take hold. So it's so important. Maybe stepping back a little bit, what does innovation actually mean to you? And what are some of the biggest barriers for innovation in your opinion? I know it's a big question. <laughs> it is a very big question. So what does it mean to me? I, I tend to think about it is always being aware and thinking about what can be changed for good, mm. right? Because there's lots of innovation that doesn't necessarily 
it does it in a new way, not necessarily in a better way. Yeah. And I'm not sure that I really feel like that's innovation. Uh, so it's really kind of thinking about what's a new way to do it that is truly better or has a better impact mm-hmm. or result. Um, and I know that's kind of a, you know, a, a very general answer. But at the same time, when you ask the question about what are some of the barriers, honestly, the biggest one, I think, is our resistance to change yeah. in general, yeah. right? Like we, nobody, you know, we say we're comfortable with change, but are we yeah. really? <laughs> are we really, really comfortable with change? And when I see a lot of our clients who are working, you know, in a B2B scenario, so they're selling two businesses, and I see the toughest thing that they have to deal with is changing the internal operations of a company and that company making a decision to do that to adopt new technologies that will make them more competitive mm-hmm. and it's it's so much easier said than done yeah so i really do believe the barriers are you know our human resistance to change and to protect what is because there's a bit of a fear of the unknown if I do this, what will happen? Will I really be successful Mm. or will it all go south and I'm going to lose my job? I mean, those are real human conditions around our not adopting innovation sometimes. Mm. Um, And I'll give you a great example. I had a meeting yesterday with a company who has a completely new business model for translation services. Brand new business model. Um, It's a better model for those who do the translation. more cost-effective, always on, higher accuracy rates, all of these great things. And the exact conversation we had was, how do we help the companies he wants to sell to change because they're resistant to it? Interesting, eh? You know, it's risk adversity and uh, resistance to change. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? And I think, you know, we definitely experience this at the United Way, right? We're, we're this organization that's been around for a hundred years and has really, uh, you know, very well known brand, but not, not, but people don't know what we do often and, and innovating our approach and sort of shifting with the demographics and really being able to reach and stay relevant with younger, with younger people is challenging when you have the momentum of history and when you have that kind of, this has worked. Right. And, and so I'm really interested at this, um, like, how do you, what are some strategies that you use when approaching, say, a, a company that on the surface, because innovation, everybody wants to be seen as innovative, right? You know, I think if you asked a company, what are your top priorities? Innovation is probably yeah. up there. Yeah, nobody says I want to be a dinosaur. That's right. Like, nobody says, nobody that. says that, right? But yet practice doesn't play that out, right? You definitely see that people as you said, are extremely risk averse and it can be really difficult to shift those business practices. So what are some of the strategies that you use when approaching, say, some of those companies? And you have this great idea, this great product, this thing that's working that is going to be cheaper, is going to do this. How do you break through the noise? How do you convince them and shift them and move them so that they begin to think about the opportunity and not just the risk? It's such an important question. And if I had the the magic to that one, I'm not sure I'd be sitting here. We'd be doing this on, you know, some private beach and having a a very lovely time sitting in the sunshine. Um, So it's very tough. And I think the answer is it depends on the sector. Um, And some of my background, I worked in the education space. So one Mm. thing, education space is tough. It's a lot of things to deal with. But one of the beautiful things about education is because they didn't compete with each other, they would share information. So the trick was to find your innovator, your true innovator, 
who's going to adopt the practice mm -hmm. and then use that as your reference and case study because then the next one does it the next one and the next one and pretty soon you've hit that tipping point where it's not so hard anymore to go mm. knock on the next door because you know your first group of adopters are doing for you mm. so in some cases that's not going to work because the sectors are very competitive yeah um so then it becomes a case of well how do you tell the story to your client how do you find the right person within the organization who is the risk taker and it's not always about risk it's sometimes just about you know are they willing to do something different it doesn't mm. mean it's a risk but think differently about what they're doing so find that person support them work with them build that network within the company and and make them really successful mm. tell the stories you have to have credibility right so you have to show that you can do it you have to gain that trust you have to deliver on what you say you're going to deliver and then you know over time be patient as well is probably the other thing is it does require some patience to do all of that so it's not easy and like i said if i had the magic I, you know it would be a whole different world and i would share it with anybody in our network um, but it's a lot of hard work and it's a lot of discipline and perseverance. Yeah, no, it's, that's, that's really interesting. Cause it's, it's still, it's still so analog in a lot of ways, right? Like we're, we're, what you're really talking about is building relationships, um, finding those people who are willing to take some of those early risks, telling those stories. Like it's, it's, it's interesting that that process itself is so like classic right like it's just it's, it's a very and 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 i'm really kind of encouraged actually to to because one of the things as we're building out our social innovation labs one of the core principles that we have at the at the basis of it is is that sharing that openness that, that kind of open source and i think that's i struggle often with um the way that innovations get you know in the desire to monetize you want to sort of close them up right and you want to sort of be able to 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 say okay this is ours and and i think one of the uh, you know your example of the education sector being able to share i mean that's really interesting that that's a sector that i think a lot of people wouldn't see as very innovative but i think i think you know i, I love that sort of idea that by taking down those barriers and removing the threat of competition or that threat of like we need to be first to it yeah. it really opens up some amazing possibilities yeah yeah. yeah, and I think the other thing too, the other um, strategy opportunity, maybe even what you're doing in your work with social innovation is creating safe opportunities yeah. for people to gain the experience of trying things, yeah. right? And, and we think about that here and, you know, with some of our corporate partners yeah. looking at the same thing, right? So how do we help them by creating safe places to see what the impact can be so that they can, you know, then take the next step and the next step after that? Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm wondering, what do you think are some of the biggest issues you say? So right now, you know, we're in the middle of an election and there's a lot of changes on the horizon, a lot of uncertainty, whether it's climate change or, or just really the uncertainty around the election. What do you think some are, are some of the biggest issues facing Ontario and Canada over the next few years? And what role do you see your organization and, and organizations like yours, yours playing? Mm. Wow, you, you ask big questions. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so what are some of the challenges for Ontario and Canadian companies? I, I think one challenge is really thinking about their market. So I would love to see more Canadian, Ontario Canadian companies adopting innovation faster. Mm -hmm. right? We've, you know, in the manufacturing space, we're talking about Industry 4.0. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, finding more companies adopting faster would be a great and thing. And what's Industry 4.0? So that would be, you know, thinking about more automation okay. in the manufacturing yep. space. Yep. And I think, again, I go back to there's some fear sometimes in yeah. doing that. People might lose jobs. Um, but when I look at other places who've done more adoption and more automation, they're actually not losing jobs, right? Because they're becoming more productive, more sales, more expansion of their markets. Um, it's different types of jobs, different skills, which can be, you know, a whole other challenge to adopt and get those skills. And that's, you know, another tough area, but great opportunity. Um, so I think one of the challenges is adopting innovation faster, taking, and I say risk, but I don't really feel like it's risk. I think it's really understanding how innovation and adopting new technologies and approaches and processes can make your business more competitive. So I think it's the complacency, if we can kind of knock ourselves off of being complacent and look at the fact that you're not just competing in Ontario, you're not just competing in Canada. You know, what is the broader market opportunity, whether it's in the States or more in Europe or wherever it is, but thinking more about going beyond the Canadian, mm -hmm. Ontario or Canadian borders and, you know, thinking big, thinking global, mm -hmm. where, where you can go with it. For some companies, they're born, you know, you've heard the expression born in the cloud, and that's a very easy thing. Um, and other ones, we're looking at how do we support them. So you ask the question about what are we doing. Some examples would be Haltech partners closely with the region of Halton and the Global Business Center. So for those companies who are now mm -hmm. looking to expand and take that step, we partner with them and tap into their resources. Lots of corporate partners also in that space who can help. I, I think, you know, our biggest role in all of that is to help clients understand what's available. And there are a lot of programs. You know, you mentioned we're in flex with the election and government, and there's still lots of great programs out there and available for clients who are innovating and looking to get to their next step. So our job is to help them identify mm. what's right for them. Is there a grant? Is there a program? Help them get involved and engaged in those. And I feel like we're the accelerator. Because if you're an entrepreneur, you're, you you got a tough, long day with a lot to do and you wear so many hats. So if you can come to us and say, hey, here's what I've got going on. Here's what I need to do next. Is there anything available to take advantage of? So we can help accelerate that process because we're tapped into the network. So there's making them aware of programs, opportunities, market research that we have access to. So I think it really feels like accelerate. Yeah. And also let entrepreneurs, they're not alone. Let them know that, right? There's, yeah. there's lots of support out there. And again, you know, we get really busy, really heads down. And you have to get into the mode of uh, working on the business, not always in the business. Mm -hmm. And kind of saying, okay, I'm going to go check out Haltech and see what they've got going for me today. Yeah, and it can be quite lonely when you're an entrepreneur, right? And and like like you said, you have to wear a lot of hats. You have to switch. You have to change those hats every day, um, and and it can be lonely. And it's a lot, lot long hours. So I think you know, it's important not to underestimate the the even having like you know I've I've walked around your facility and just having the, that those kind of co working spaces where you can kind of bump into each other and 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 share some of those stories and challenges and trials and you know that in itself seems to be useful yeah and you know what that's useful the other thing that we see come out of that is the opportunity yeah. created and yeah. you know it may be as simple as hey i'm looking for this oh i know somebody who does yeah. that 
And we've, we've had examples like um, even two of our clients happened to meet in the lunchroom. Mm. Talking, one was talking about what they were doing and some of the challenges they were having finding a chief technical officer. This person was so intrigued by the idea, he sort of put his idea on the shelf and went over to join this other client, right? So you may even wow. see, you know, sharing of talent and wow. come together of different companies creating brand new opportunities just by not working by yourself at a Starbucks. Hmm. That's cool. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about return on investment. Um, so this is an area in the nonprofit sector where um, it can be a little bit challenging um, to think about kind of return on investment. And I think right now in the kind of, I would say in the kind of climate, the funding climate, um, you know, our donors are always looking for a return on investment a little bit different. They're looking often for social return on investment and, and sort of understanding, you know, if I invest X amount of dollars into this program, what is that sort of social return on investment? I think your sector and the for-profit sector has got a pretty good handle on that kind of return on investment in a kind of a narrow monetary sense. How do you think, you know, as we're moving forward and we're thinking about some of the complex problems that are kind of emerging, again, whether it's climate change, inequality, um, you know, how do we begin to layer in kind of social return on investment and develop metrics that can allow us to think about things like avoided costs, for example, which is so huge in our sector, right? We are often, um, you know, at the United Way, we try to channel our investments early on in the chain, right? So if you can, if you can say, for example, target a, a kid and through an after school program or a mentorship program and then you know avoid a trajectory where they might end up in say a detention center or utilizing sort of addiction services now that in theory is 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 actually very cost effective right because you can avoid say you know the most expensive and and Saskatchewan was really ahead of that with their community safety and well-being plan a few years ago when they started that they realized that 80% of their budget went to children's services and detention centers and they're like well why are we spending so much money in emergency rooms and in these things but understanding that and assigning value to that is tricky so like i don't know if you can you know, having worked in this sector and also having worked in education, I'm wondering if, if you can share your thoughts about how we begin to take into account some of those externalities, those avoided costs. And even with something like climate change right now, talking about those things, we are, it's so easy to discount the future yeah. and we don't take it into account. So how do we, how do we shift that mentality? It's such an important topic. I think, and you've hit it, that we're at the very early stages of figuring out how do we calculate return on investment in a social setting and for social innovations and how does that work. Uh, so again, I'm going to share my thoughts and opinions, but this yes. is such an evolving yeah, space. Absolutely. Um, I, I think one of the challenges we're up against is we're a little bit in this world of sound bites. Yeah. And, you know, quick sound bites are what people are looking for, like 52% on return or yeah. whatever it is. Or um, That is a challenge because I think when we get into trying to figure out what return on social innovation should be, it's a more complex, yeah. layered, subtle conversation. Um, so I think we have to figure out what is the education mm. around some of the examples that you shared. So the Saskatchewan example, I know from my background in education, we would have very similar conversations about how technology can play a role in education and giving access to technology and spending there will save you in detentions, in addictions, in all of those other costs that are downstream. So I 
you know, I think that is the challenge is how do we educate and have those those views of the potential earlier in the cycle rather than kind of down the road. You know, it's similar to the, the healthcare challenge. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. I, I might smoke. Well, it's a lot easier to get to stop smoking or should be rather than treating lung disease. So yeah. Like, so how do we move that forward and how do we think about it? I don't know. I think it's got to be ongoing education. I think it's got to be how do we measure that? How do we maybe pick a couple of things that are a little bit easier to yeah. understand? Yeah. Like one or two. And for me, I sometimes think about is the talent piece one that we can better quantify mm. and think about how to measure that? So I'll give you an example of one of the clients we have here, which is Spiro Careers. And they're working with people on the spectrum to better identify what they need to be employed, the right kinds of roles, the employers who are open to that. And the thing is that they're filling a gap, right? We don't have enough talent. So they're understanding that this is a whole talent pool we have tapped into before. How do we close that off? And then I think you can start to look at, all right, you know, getting that, those roles filled helping people who are now, you know, they've got income and they're able to do things that they weren't realizing before and it takes down costs in other areas. So I think something like talent might be one of those areas where it's very immediate. A lot of sectors and companies are feeling the need for talent. They're all, you know, I see them every day. I need talent. I need talent. Um, Getting them to think differently about some of the opportunities that come from socialization and quantifying that. That feels like maybe that's one that's easier for people to understand and is more immediate than climate change. Climate change is so important and we're all feeling it right now. But as you said, like we're willing to sacrifice the future for the present. Whereas the talent problem, so many people are feeling it right now. Yeah. But if we can address yeah. that and then quantify what some of those social approaches are to doing that, it might be easier and more broadly understood because it's yeah, and that's and that's so interesting, and I, and I love that you focus in on that education piece as well, because I think, you know, as you said, we, you know, we're in the Twitter age, right? It's so people want these short, easy to digest, kind of siloed understandings of everything, and and that's really challenging. And I think, I think back again, and I know co- climate change is like a complicated one, but I think right now it's just on everybody's mind um, with the election, and 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 I think back to like when I first moved to Ontario, and uh, back in two thousand and four. And coming from the prairies, I was shocked at the air quality and like the, the smog days. And and very quickly, you know, when we shut down the coal plants here, those smog days disappeared. But it's interesting that the discussion around closing those plants has been entirely around the economics of green energy and not the fact that we don't have the same child asthma problems we do anymore. Mm-hmm. We had a 30% child asthma rate um, when, those, when there was 60, 70 smog days a year. Like that's plummeted. And it's interesting that that doesn't get calculated as a savings from closing coal plants, right? So breaking down those silos, I mean, I think that education piece is so important because realizing, wait a minute, maybe we spent a little bit over here, but look over here. And then let's talk about the quality of life, right? Like the fact that, you know, again, like on a personal level, I developed asthma when I came here through that that went away like that's 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 yeah. pretty significant i would say well i wonder you know to your point if it part of the problem could be solved with better and more storytelling and activism yeah and and, and i think you know being um finding ways to do that yeah. and it's, you know that may be social media yeah. but 
it's it's got to be other ways as well. So how do we kind of figure out how to get that out so that you know we recognize yeah. young coal plants meant that we have a lot less breathing and other respiratory yeah. issues, and that's worth something. So how do we put a number? on That's that? right, and because like you know it's so and I and again I think the the private sector is pretty good at this with within that kind of narrow return on investment. But like if you don't measure it, it doesn't count. Like I mean, and it's just as simple as that, right? So that like we cannot like those externalities are baked into the system. Well, and it, that is such a good point is measurement, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's one of the things that I've benefited from in my corporate career is lots yeah. of those business reviews. And if you laid out a number, you a better have a number, and yeah. b you better be able to explain where it came from, and if it's not where it should be, what you're going to do about mm-hmm. it. And I think that discipline, um, the education also goes back yeah. to all of these um, social organizations. How do we help them? Yeah articulate in a language that's common yeah right so everybody's on the same page as much as possible yeah absolutely okay so last question um and i ask everybody i interview this is if you had a magic wand or unlimited budget what would you do to improve our community and why oh man (laughs) if i had all of that um i would probably go back to some of the themes that we've talked about already like helping people understand what change is good change and how to go about it mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. you know and and again change is a very broad topic but how do we get people more comfortable and then i think the other thing if i had that magic wand is to you know somehow switch everybody's mindset to be a positive mm. right because i think so often it comes from a place of fear yeah. and i think if we could flip that around and come at it from how can we do it better how can i cause what's what's the result and how do I look at it in a positive way and move forward, right? And and so much of what we do is win-loss, yeah. right? So why can't we just kind of change that around and say, okay, it is. Now let's find the good in it, benefit in it, as opposed to kind of thinking, I lost out or I'm not getting as much or this or that. So I think if I could do that, that if I could do anything, maybe it would be right in there. Yeah, that, that's that's such a great way to end. I think I think you know that whether you call it a growth mindset or whether you talk, whether you think about it in terms of that kind of you know avoiding those fear based decisions. I think it's so, you know, I think politically we're we're so stuck in that kind of fear based um, model right now, and and I think that that need for hope and that need for optimism and and is so important because so many of the problems that you know you look for you look at some of the problems that we're facing right now they're all solvable like we're richer than we've ever been as a you know as a world we have more opportunities than we ever have and the pace of technological change is is incredible and and just i think you know if we can somehow unlock that kind of that that kind of utopian impulse like i i have to i have to say i, I agree with you 100% that i think that in itself can have such a powerful because we make too many of those reactive decisions based on fear yeah. and if we can open that up i mean i i share i share your sentiment that that that's where those opportunities all of a sudden become so much easier yeah and, and i really think you know you use the term growth mindset and i think that's an aspect of it but i always think about potential yeah right? yeah and and the other thing is more of a personal philosophy yeah. of mine i I uh, have been spent years training and performing improv, and one of the foundational, oh. you know, the core thing is to say yes, right? And having that mindset of saying yes yeah. is like it just changes the world, right? Like it, it really does. And I know it sounds, you know, kind of out yeah. there in the clouds, no, no, but that sounds... saying yes and having a positive 
a positive approach and thinking about potential rather than, you know, the opposite. I think it just, you know, you see the sunshine rather than the clouds. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with me. It was very insightful and um, I look forward to uh, continuing the conversation. Thank you. Let's continue to bring the unignorable issues affecting our community to the forefront. I would like to thank all of our guests and dedicated listeners. This podcast was brought to you by United Way, Halton and Hamilton. Stay social with us and keep the conversation going by following us at United Way HH on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and United Way, Halton and Hamilton on LinkedIn and YouTube. Hallelujah, it's gonna get much better.